Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself has reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of, ben, of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ but be, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning again, Sojourn. It's a joy to be with you. Um, glad to see you. Today, we are continuing our sermon series uh, through the book of Philippians, and we come to uh, a really wonderful passage. Of course, I probably should or could say that every week, but this is a particularly key, really central passage that captures, by, by central, I mean this captures the central teaching of Paul regarding the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. And so there's a lot in this passage for us this morning. Um, he's writing to a young church that's striving to hold on to the gospel amidst persecution, both from without and from within. Uh, and so Paul gives this wonderful summary of, of the essentials of the Christian faith uh, in the context of really a warning about those who would seek to lead this young church to trust in something else. And there's essentially two parts to this passage. Uh, the first part is, you could call it a polemic, a strong address of a problem that Paul's facing. And then the second part of the passage, uh, starting in verse 7, is just this wonderful summary of Paul's theology. So here's how we'll approach this passage today. First, we're going to look briefly at the problem that Paul's facing. Then we're going to look at Paul's three primary responses to this problem. And then we'll zoom out for a moment to consider the application for us today. So that's our plan. So we'll look at the problem, Paul's three main responses, and then consider some application. And so let's look briefly first at the problem that Paul is facing, or really that the church in Philippi is facing. Look with me at verse one. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So that second sentence is probably a little bit confusing um, and I actually discovered this week that there's been like books written about the second part of verse one there for how it should or shouldn't be translated. I would say it could be probably more easily translated. Writing to you again about the same things is certainly not troublesome for me, while for you it is a safeguard. 
Paul is essentially saying, I'm about to write things that you've heard me say before, and I'm doing this because it's a safeguard for you. Something is happening that's dangerous, and I want you to be safe. So that's what Paul is, is talking about. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. There's something that's going to threaten your rejoicing in the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about. Why is it important that Paul repeat himself? What's the problem? Verse 2 is where we see it. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Um, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul and his letters, you've probably come across this conflict in Paul's ministry. Uh, and it was a common problem in the early church. At this point, this is the earliest days of Christianity, a couple of decades after Jesus died and rose again. Um, and the church was, for the most part, a visibly mixed community of Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah and Gentiles who came from outside of the Jewish faith into the church through the evangelistic efforts of the church. So you have Jews and Gentiles, two very historically religiously opposed communities worshiping in the same place. And within this diverse mixture of Jew and Gentile Christians who were brought together on account of what Christ had done, there was this group of people who were trying to tell the Christians that they needed to conform to Jewish law and especially to be circumcised, to conform to the law of circumcision. This group is known, you may have heard this word before, as Judaizers. They're the Judaizers. They said you, you have to become Jewish. In order to become Christian, you become Jewish. This group was likely faithful Jews who sought to pursue righteous living under the Jewish law and continued to do so even after the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. And this group, Paul teaches us here and in several other places, is dead wrong. This is who Paul is talking about when he refers to the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. Sometimes there's challenges in translation where it's difficult to capture the full force of the original language. This is kind of the opposite. The word dogs, I think there's more in English that's actually not in the original language. There's a kind of a worthlessness, like a demeaningness to today. If I were to call, compare someone to a dog, that would be much more offensive. It was still certainly a derogatory term here but there's a sense of worthlessness that the original language doesn't include. Uh, for example, Jesus compares a Syrophoenician woman to a dog, and she didn't receive that as a demeaning insult. It was simply a religious claim. Uh, dog, uh, dogs for Jews, uh, it's a distinctly religious term. It refers to Gentiles who were considered ritually unclean. There's ritual uncleanness. Dogs are those who, in this case, are those who claim to be spiritually pure, but are unclean. The force of Paul's words is clear. These Judaizers who insist that Christians, including Gentile Christians, submit to the Jewish law and be circumcised, must be regarded as outsiders. They're telling you that they're insiders, but because they are preaching a different gospel, you can treat them as they're dogs, they're outsiders, they're outside the covenant community to be treated as unclean. They're not walking in the ways of God. And the next phrases Paul uses uh, drive the point, point home. He says, look out for the evildoers and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So these are particularly derogatory to a Jewish person claiming to be Jewish and righteous for Paul to call them evildoers. They had said they were, they were trying to observe the law in righteousness and good works. And Paul says, you're doing evil. So that's particularly stinging for a group of Jews seeking to be righteous. And then those who mutilate the flesh. So this is a reference to circumcision. Um, and Paul is saying that because you're practicing this right, this biblical command in a way that's out of line with the word of God, the teaching of God, the intent of God, 
this is your, your practice of what you call circumcision is no, no better than any pagan ceremony. You're simply doing work of mutilation. And these are huge statements, right? These Judaizers profess to be righteous people walking in good works. And Paul calls them dogs. Rather than workers of good, they're evildoers. Rather than those who are identified as God's people, Paul says, you're just mutilating, mutilating the flesh. I'll talk more about circumcision in just a moment, but hopefully you understand the problem that Paul's addressing. There are those among you, the apostle Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, who are professing to teach you the things of God, but because of their misunderstanding of the gospel, they're leading you astray and into darkness rather than light. So watch out for them. And so let's look at how Paul responds to this problem. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll better understand what they were arguing as we go through how he responds. Like I said, he gives three main responses. For the first, look with me here at verse three. Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So when Paul uses, uh, says the circumcision here, he's using a term that appears several times in the Bible to refer to God's people, God's true people. We are the people of God, the circumcision. We are the true people of God, not the Judaizers. If you put it together, actually, with that last phrase in verse two, those who mutilate the flesh, that's actually one word. It's, they are the, look out for the mutilation. We are the circumcision. They're rhyming words in English and they're rhyming words in Greek. So Paul's making a very powerful point. They are the mutilation. We are the circumcision. The, uh, essentially, Paul's first response is this. We are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. We are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. I'm getting that phrase actually from another of Paul's letters, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul talks about the Old Testament and all of the stories of God loving and pursuing and delivering his people. And, and Paul gives this summary statement. He says, all of these things were written down. The whole purpose of the Old Testament was that these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul was often accused by Jews and including these Judaizers of rejecting the message of the Old Testament. But Paul's response is it's exactly the opposite. You're the ones who've missed the entire message of the Old Testament. All that was written in the Old Testament was written about what's happening right now and what's happened in Christ. All of those things were written for us who have seen and experienced the victorious ministry of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. So this is what Paul is saying when he says we are the circumcision. He's pulling out the big guns of the Old Testament. He's pulling out the central sign, the thing that made Israel Israel, circumcision, and he flips it on its head. He says, you guys are practicing this wrongly and that's making you tantamount to being outside of the people of God. Whereas we who are inwardly circumcised uh, are the ones to whom circumcision pointed. So circumcision was always a deeply spiritual forward-looking reality. When the law was given through Moses, God told them from the beginning that circumcision was never merely about outward belonging, but it pointed to the heart. Uh, he told them, God told them through Moses to circumcise the foreskin of their hearts. They're in Deuteronomy chapter 10. 
Later in the prophets, God promised that there was coming a day that he would come and circumcise their hearts for them. This is what Paul is saying. Saying we are that circumcision. The day has come. And it's not just circumcision. Paul goes on to essentially say it's all of this, the life of God's people. Uh, Even worship itself. For we are the circumcision, verse 3, who worship by the spirit of God. There's one primary place in Jesus' ministry where he talks about worship uh, in his earthly ministry. And it's in John chapter 4 where Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman at a well. You may be familiar with this story. I referred to it actually a few weeks ago in a sermon uh, where Jesus comes up to a well in the middle of the day and he's tired and a Samaritan woman approaches him and they get into a conversation. They talk about a few things. One of the things is about worship. And Jesus tells this woman this, this Samaritan woman, she's an outsider, far from God. Jesus says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, speaking of the Samaritan worship, nor in Jerusalem, where Jesus is saying Jerusalem is actually where the true worship has been happening for all these years. But he says, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What Jesus is saying there is that true worship which is in the temple in Jerusalem is coming to an end shortly because the hour is coming and is now here when worshipers will worship in the spirit, in and by the spirit rather than in the temple. That's what Jesus is saying. And so when Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God, Paul is quoting Jesus to say, we are the new covenant people of God. We are the ones on whom the ends of the ages has come. No longer are we bound by old covenant temple worship, which was a shadow of what was to come. No longer are we bound to live Jewish righteous lives under the law. We have been freed from it because a new era in God's history has come. And as a caveat, this is not... Uh, Jesus's words and Paul's words here are not talking about the true worshiper being one who worships in, in an inner sense rather than exterior sense. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Worship has always been about inner worship. Circumcision has always been about the heart, according to God's word. What is new is the significance of the coming of the spirit. There's this new age in salvation uh, in which God dwells in his people as his new house. This promised new order has come. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says elsewhere, he's a new creation. Every Christian with the spirit is able to worship God. You you see what Paul is saying against these Judaizers. They're short phrases. He's doing what the apostle Paul does. He's packing a ton into a few phrases. But he's saying, we are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God. We are the new people of God, the new covenant people of God. This is, this is the time that we've been waiting for. You guys are the ones who are ignoring the Old Testament. The next two statements in verse three go together and pull things together. Paul says, to glory, we glory in Christ and we put no confidence in the flesh. And these of course are opposites. To glory in Christ is to put, put one's confidence in Christ rather than in the flesh, rather than in yourself and in what you do. Uh, in this certainly, uh, so in the words of John Calvin, uh, in the term flesh, Paul includes everything external in man that he could possibly glory in. Or to express it briefly, he calls flesh 
everything that is outside Christ. So those who rely on the flesh are relying on what they are able to do. And this certainly includes circumcision, but it's, of course, a much wider, far-reaching, like all-encompassing category. There are two kinds of people, Paul says. There's those who trust in Christ, who glory in Christ, and everyone else. Everyone else is depending on the flesh, everyone, and, uh, except for those who are in Christ, who are worshiping by the Spirit. So to summarize Paul's first response, Paul's basically saying this. He says, the old system was valid and important. It pointed to Christ. But now that Christ has come, things have changed. Circumcision has found its fulfillment in Christ, applied by the Spirit in the hearts of God's people. The old way no longer applies because we are those on whom the ends of the ages has come. There are some who resist this, Paul says, and you need to watch out for them. They're going to make smooth arguments. They'll make it sound compelling. They may even, to your best estimation, mean well, but they're wrong. I didn't mention this a moment ago. There was also some conflict going on at this time, to give a note on context, between the Philippian church and the Roman authorities, or really Roman society. Christians at this time were seen as a new thing, which was going to interrupt the fabric of society in Rome. And so that was one of the reasons that the Christian church was persecuted. It was new. It was interrupting the Pax Romana, the, 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 the Roman peace. And so some of these, uh, part of the appeal of circumcision for the early church was that it would identify the Philippian church with the Jews, which would be an authorized religion in Rome. So part of the appeal was, oh, we can, if you just get circumcised, we can live peaceably with the rest of Roman society. But whatever the motivation whether it was seeking to live righteously under the Old Testament law or whether it was seeking to live peaceably within Rome, Paul's argument is clear. To demand circumcision is to argue against the gospel of Jesus. We are the circumcision. We are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. That's Paul's first response. His second response builds upon the first. And let me approach it this way. Because everything has changed with Jesus... There are deep personal implications. Here's what I mean. We are the circumcision, Paul writes, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And let's keep reading. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul gives seven statements, a number that means completion, to testify to his past life in, under the Jewish law. And here's what's going on. In a collective sense, the nature of the people of God has changed. The faithful are worshipers by the Spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus, rather than who glory in their righteousness under the law, which means that in an individual sense, the self-conception of a person who is a part of the people of God has changed too. We are people who put no confidence in the flesh. And for Paul, this changes everything for him. He shares his resume, and it's a really accomplished resume. He was circumcised as a Jew. He's got a solid lineage. He's kept the law. He's zealously persecuted this Christian movement. He's blameless under the law. But none of that matters anymore. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, 
I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. None of what Paul has done before matters anymore because now it's all about Jesus and what he has done. Paul has come to the terms with the fact that his previous successes in Judaism really amount to nothing more than spiritual bankruptcy. I did my best, Paul says. I worked as hard as I could. And now that I've come to know Christ, I see all of that for what it is, rubbish. What he once held in high regard is now revolting for him. It probably would be more appropriate to translate this something like excrement or dung. I count it all as dung. It's probably important to clarify that Paul's Jewishness itself is not the thing that he's casting aside right here. Um, uh, He appreciates his identity with his people and the value of his heritage. The heritage itself is not what he found revolting. Instead, it's viewing that heritage as meritorious in itself. That's what Paul finds revolting. I used to count on my flesh for justification before God. in a way that obscured the need for full dependence on God's grace. Why does it obscure the need for full dependence on God's grace? Because being bound to human performance is being bound to the flesh rather than bound in the spirit. If you think about it, it's interesting that Paul includes this list. Here's a section where he's talking about how great Christ is and how inferior the old way is, and he inserts some stuff about his past accomplishments. It's interesting to think that he, why, why did he put all of this in here? He could have just skipped from verse three to verse seven. Uh, one, one commentator calls it mock boasting, kind of mocking the Judaizers. Um, I don't know that I, anyway, yeah. Uh, it is a way of boasting and then casting it aside. I think the reason though he includes this is because the Judaizers who threatened the Philippian community, no doubt, would have appealed to their impressive Jewish credentials themselves. They would have gained a lot of support in the Philippian church. Hey, look at all we've done. Circumcised on this day of this tribe, righteousness under the law, blameless. So they would have been testifying to their own credentials. And so Paul responds in a way that makes it clear that he's not just in their club, he led their club, right? They couldn't have asked for anything more impressive than Paul's resume here. To give an illustration this way, Um, A few years ago, I remember watching a video that uh, talked about college being obsolete. It's a movement that was was kind of taking steam that said college is unnecessary. And um, uh, if you think about it, if that is a movement that is led by people who haven't gone to college yet, it's a really easy movement to dismiss. If you get a bunch bunch of people together who have never been to college, and they start hoorahing about how, man, college is not important. You can look at them and say, they don't really know what they're talking about. But if you make them all college graduates who maybe have postgraduate degrees, and then they all come together and say, actually, we've found that college is not really necessary, then you might listen a little bit differently. Paul is not some crazy, radical, fringe Jew who's coming in and saying, hey, let's just abandon Judaism. That would have been pretty easy to dismiss. 
He's coming in and saying, no, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the leading Jewish movement of the day. I owned, I, I was in this, guys. And I count it all as loss. He's done it all, more than most, and he counts it all as lost. It's useless now, if not negatively affecting him and others. That's, I think, why he goes so specifically. Because if he didn't address it so specifically and said, these are the things that I'm setting aside, then maybe people who were following him would have said, well, Paul went to this school. Paul got this degree. So even though he's saying that it's all about Jesus, I'm going to go to this degree, get the same degree, and talk about Jesus too. Paul says, I count all of that as loss. You don't need to do any of it. It's all about knowing Christ. This is as central to the Christian message today as it was then. Of course, then, in the immediate context, it meant something specific. You can have built up a reputation as a good and righteous law keeper, and Paul says, you should, like I have, count that all as loss. As a side note, there's been some debate as to whether Paul's experience of coming to Christianity is a conversion experience or not. You may have heard there's been some debate probably not among any of you, just people who have a lot more time than I do, who write about whether Paul was converted or whether he just kind of came into Christianity. Um, Here, I think we see that it was clearly a conversion experience that Paul experienced. Was it a conversion or a call is the debate. Was he just called by Christ or was he converted to Christ? It's certain that it was a calling. And it's true that Paul did not see this as an abandonment of the God of Israel, But it's true that he was converted, which literally means going from one way of life to a wholly different one. Losing this and gaining this. That's what the word literally means. Negative evaluation of a prior way of life against a positive description of a new way of life. The key idea here is that knowing Christ overshadows everything else that might have possibly been considered a gain. As Jesus said, What profit will a man have if he gains the whole world and loses his life? Or elsewhere, what person, Jesus says, when he finds a treasure of surpassing value, wouldn't sell everything he has in order to go purchase that thing that is of surpassing value? This principle, of course, still applies today. Whatever we might find our worth in today, whether it's that college degree or that post-secondary degree, whether it's that job or that spouse or that number of kids or that house or that neighborhood, whatever it is that we might find our meaning for our lives, put our trust in and say, well, at least I have this. Gosh, if all of that goes, you know, goes down the tube, at least I have this, whatever that is. Paul says, all of it, is overshadowed by knowing Christ. There's this song uh, written a number of years ago called Jesus is Better. It's written by Aaron Ivey, Austin Stone Worship. I love that song. Um, And there's a bridge in that song that says, in all of my sorrows, Jesus is better. In every victory, Jesus is better. Than any comfort, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Anything else that we might place our hope our joy, our faith in, Paul says it's all loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. To, you guys might have, did any of you guys have Legos as kids? 
I ha had, I'll say I have Legos. Um, <laughs> I remember as a kid having Legos and getting this kit uh, to build this kind of spaceship. I love building spaceships. And then I'd take all the pieces and break them apart and build them into my own little creations that were totally flight worthy, I told myself. But, um, but then I remember the new, the, the next gen, it, it wasn't Star Wars, it was some movie that I watched at the time of Trevor Wardos. I remember the next one coming out. What if I just left that box sitting on the side and said, no, this spaceship is the awesome one. This is the one I want to stay with. Like I got no interest in anything else. And it's just this, you know, goes from like a 150 piece spaceship to like a 18,000 piece spaceship. I don't need that. I'm content with my little 150 piece Lego structure. Paul's saying, what are you doing? Why are you demanding circumcision when you have the spirit? Why are you demanding adherence to the law, righteousness through the law, when you have righteousness through faith in Christ? We count all that we've accomplished or could have accomplished as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's the second response Paul has. The first was the fact that we're the ones, Paul says, on whom the ends of the ages has come. We are the circumcision. The second is that on, on account of that, all else is lost because Christ is everything. He's all that we need. Uh, and then the third response is this. Why is Jesus everything? Because he is the righteousness of God for us. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Verse 8, verse 8 ends with this. He says, For this sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And what does it mean to gain Christ? Verse 9. To be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. To quote one commentator, Paul, no doubt, would have been the first to protest that the gospel he proclaimed is too rich to be reduced to a few sentences. But if such a feat could be accomplished, these verses would be it. Another writer calls this whole chapter, chapter 3, foundational for theology, a true classic of Christian spirituality. In these short verses, verses 9 through 11 especially, Paul gives us three essential statements for what it means to be a Christian. What we gain in Christ. Verse 9, to be found in him means to have righteousness through faith. Verse 10, to gain Christ means to know him and to become like him. And verse 11, to gain Christ means to attain to the resurrection, which means that one day we will get to be face to face with him again. The theological words for those realities are justification, sanctification, and glorification. In this, we're given a basic kind of threefold structure, like I said, of what it means to be a Christian. Justification is the entry point. Sanctification is the journey of growth in this life. And then glorification is the end goal, the destiny, the destination of being raised to be face-to-face -face with, face -face with Christ. And so let's look at these things briefly, one at a time. For justification, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
So for Paul, it's all about righteousness. When we gain Christ, we gain his righteousness. We get declared righteous, we then get made righteous, and then we get raised righteous. That's justification, sanctification, glorification. To be declared righteous, we get access to the righteousness of Christ simply through faith, not through obedience to the law. So here again, Paul emphasizes the distinction of dependence on the flesh and the way of the spirit. Dependence on righteousness according to the law versus fully and finally depending on Christ for our righteousness. This frees us from the need to be perfect in ourselves, which is impossible. The only way to access salvation is not through righteous adherence to the law, but through faith in Jesus, period. To become a Christian. When the question is, what does it take for me to become a Christian? Faith and works are incompatible. For justification. My righteousness comes from Christ and from Christ alone. Now, we talked about this earlier. We have been saved unto a life of good works. A Christian is marked by both faith and works, according to the, uh, the Apostle James in his letter. But in terms of what it means to become a Christian, we leave our works outside. We count them all as loss. And we come in and simply receive the righteousness that Christ gives us by faith. In this way, faith can be defined not only as trusting Christ in a positive sense, but also in a negative sense. We count as loss all those things that could be considered grounds for self-confidence. And notice right there at the beginning of verse 9, Paul says that I may be found in him. In case you're worried that Christianity is about abstract speculation or some detached set of teachings from a couple thousand years ago. Here is Paul's doctrine of justification, which is at the center in many ways of the doctrine of salvation. Rooted in, so his doctrine here is rooted in and completed in a person. The gospel is a person and a life to be lived. Colossians chapter three, Paul says it this way. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. For Paul, the gospel is both a person and a life that we enjoy in that person who is Christ. And there's a bit of rhetorical beauty in this verse. Instead of losing everything and finding something else, instead of describing, this is a nuance, I wanna point it out. Conversion, you might think, I lost this and I gained something else. But that's not how Paul says it. He doesn't say, I lost everything and then I found something. He says, I lost everything and then I was found. I lost everything, counted all as lost, because I was found. Not because I found something. It was, it was up to me to go search and find now, there's, of course, other parts in the Bible that talk about seeking and finding and knocking and, and asking questions. That's a wonderful thing to pursue. But Paul, when he's talking about the center of the gospel, he says, I lost everything because I was found. This is at the heart of the gospel. It's glorious and it's cosmic. It's deeply personal. It's direct. It's God's relationship of love with us as his people. To give just, this is a very imperfect illustration, but I remember when I first met Lindsay and I met her father uh, and asked him for 
if I could marry Lindsay. And he said this one kind of aside in that conversation. He told me, he said, Paul, we've been praying you for you since you were born. And I thought, you know, and now I didn't grow up Christian. So I don't know, maybe you guys grew up Christian. You're like, oh yeah, that's, that's how parents talk about it. I'd never heard that talked about that way. Um, and it meant a lot to me to think, man, before I even knew about this family, this wonderful woman, her family was already praying for her future husband, who was me. And that's like a minuscule example of what it's like with God. Before the foundations of the world, God set his sights on his children. He didn't wait till we started looking for him. He came and found us. That's justification. It's deeply relational. Paul emphasizes that it's union with a person, not adherence to a set of teachings. Not some detached faith in a Messiah who lived thousands of years ago who you try to emulate, but union with Christ by faith. That's what being found in him means. That's what it means to be found righteous. It's simply in, to be in a relationship with the one who was righteous. The second thing there is sanctification. For sanctification, look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming life like him in his death. So if justification is about being found in Christ, seen as righteous by faith, then sanctification is about becoming righteous, growing in our knowledge of Christ and becoming like him. And for Paul, you see, when you become a Christian, you receive the spirit, you don't become perfect immediately. That takes time. It's a journey of transformation. As knowledge and love of God deepens, the heart will transform. Maturation will happen. And as Paul describes it, he describes it in terms of experiencing the power of the resurrection and of sharing in his sufferings. This renewal, this transformation, uh, we're told elsewhere in the Bible that the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the very spirit that he's given to us. And so what does it look like to experience the power of the resurrection? It means to lean in and be transformed into Christ's image. On the other hand, this growth and transformation doesn't come without pain. Paul says to share in his sufferings. Paul's talked about this before, back in chapter one. Christian citizens will experience conflict, suffering, struggle, Paul talks here, though, about desiring to experience a share in the sufferings of Christ. We often talk about the life of Christ. It's important to do this, right? What, what we should try to love like Jesus loved. We should try to live like Jesus lived. But here, Paul takes a moment to examine the death of Christ. We should also seek to die as Jesus died. Think about how he died, not simply that he died. How did he die? He was defenseless. He stood accused and was silent as he stood accused. He suffered for the sake of others rather than for his own sake. He was gracious and forgiving. He endured shame. He didn't avoid it. In an age in which comfort is the be-all, end-all, we must remember that avoiding difficulty and pain is avoiding the very soil within which God often transforms us as his children. Dodds said a month or two ago, uh, he kind of tweaked, you might remember this if you, were, if you heard his sermon, talking about a quote from Billy Graham, who always used to say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. 
And Dodds made a wonderful tweet to that. He said, God has a difficult plan for your life. When we avoid difficulty, when we avoid pain. Now, we don't chase after pain and difficulty because that makes everything good. But when we avoid good things that are hard, we're avoiding the very soil within which transformation often happens. We experience the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. That's sanctification. And then finally, glorification. When we look at verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. For Paul, this is the end goal, right? This, this resurrection refers to being raised in perfect righteousness unto life with God. This is what resurrection from the dead is. There's more to come on this idea next week. This is kind of a transition statement for the, for the, the, the phrase, for the text that comes next week. But for this week, it certainly serves as a capstone to all of what Paul is saying. He's going to go on and say, I leave behind, I lay behind, or I leave, what does he say? Leave what is behind, and I push forward for what is ahead. And what is this? Being face-to-face with Christ. So often, as human beings, we are so focused on the here and now that we lose sight of what's coming in the future. And that can, we can even limit that to even within this life. We can be so focused on what's happening in my mid-30s that I'm ignoring the effect of what's going to happen in my mid-40s so long as I'm patient in, in my mid-30s. But even beyond that, we are so often focused on making this life as comfortable and pleasant and wonderful as we possibly can that we lose sight of the fact that we, there are thousands and ten thousands. There's, when we talk about uh, uh, how long we're going to live with Christ face-to-face, it's eternal. When we come to situations that we face, we should not be asking the question, man, what's this, what's this going to do to me in five, you know, what, what, what are the next few days going to look like if I say yes to this? We should be thinking, what is my life going to look like in 10,000 years if I do this or don't do this? For Paul, um, the, 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 the hope that we have in Christ is the hope that when we are justified and brought into God's righteousness, we then begin to experience growth into the righteousness, becoming more and more like Jesus, all as a preparation for coming face to face with him and enjoying him for all eternity. That is the destination. So in summary, Paul's words here contain a key teaching that's at the very heart of Christianity. Enjoying the righteousness that comes through faith alone, even before lifting a finger. Savoring this truth allows us to abandon devoting ourselves to the flesh and to being just as good as we possibly can be, and instead focusing our lives on knowing God more and more. Experiencing union with him more and more. Watching as he makes us more and more like him and prepares us for eternity with him. For Paul, it's all about Jesus. Being found righteous was his primary focus. And now that he has that righteousness in Christ, God alone, uh, Paul is living in Christ, living like him, knowing God is Paul's first pursuit because God is a, a good father. He's poured our spirits into our hearts. Our task is simply to know him more to know him and the power of his resurrection, 
sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, we may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so in summary, here's what we've seen. We've seen that Paul's response to these Judaizers who've gotten it dead wrong is he looks at them and he says, guys, we are the ones on whom the ends of the ages have come. We are the circumcision. He says, instead of the old way, it's all about Christ. And then he says here in this latter part, Christ has opened the way to salvation. We are welcomed in by faith alone, sustained and made to be like him through the love of God and prepared to one day be face to face with him for all eternity. And so may God make us a church who fix our eyes on him, who put no confidence in the flesh, but who seek to know him more and more with each passing day. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this, your word, which you've given us, you've preserved for us, you've spoken to us. And I pray this morning that you would minister to us, continue your ministry of the word to us as we seek to apply what Paul is teaching us, what you are teaching us through the words of Paul. Help us, Lord, to look out for those who would call us to dependence on the flesh. We are in a crazy moment in history, Lord. Times are changing. There are many voices telling us what we should put our hope in and what's going to lead to more human flourishing on a large scale or for us personally. There's so many voices speaking and tempting us to depend and put our confidence on the flesh. Please protect us from that. Help us to look out for those things and instead to place our faith in Christ, to worship by the Spirit, to lean into the internal circumcision that you've given us in Christ. Help us to devote ourselves to meditating on your word, to knowing more about you, to experiencing you. Help us to see you moving in one another's lives and to say those things out loud for our good and for the good of those around us. And help us, give us a picture, Lord, of eternity that would inform our patience and kindness and grace and love and trust in the present. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.